dangerously close. My guest today is Holly Patterson. Holly Patterson has a background in national security and is a former member of the intelligence community. She holds a Bachelor of Politics and International Relations. She has suffered from depression and suicidal ideation her whole life and since 2017, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Holly is also autistic and has ADHD. After a suicide attempt in 2018, Holly traveled to South America seeking alternative treatment at a traditional shamanic plant medicine retreat in Peru. Holly's experiences were profound and life-changing. After her ceremonies, her nightmares had lessened significantly, suicidal ideation had disappeared, and she no longer felt scared and anxious. After returning from Peru, Holly discovered art therapy. She is now an enthusiastic fluid artist and psychedelic therapy advocate, helping veterans and first responders access psychedelic therapy overseas and teaching the value of art therapy. What's up, Holly? Hey, <laughs> thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, for, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad that I got through re reading your introduction in a smooth way. It doesn't always go that yeah. well for me. <laughs> uh, it's a bit long. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, so I know that uh, dealing with national security and like intelligence, you probably can't share a lot of details about your work, but can you share just a general idea of the kind of things you dealt with at your job? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Working in the intelligence community does definitely mean that you're very limited with what you can say. <laughs> um, I worked uh, drug importation cases. I worked people smuggling cases, uh, child pornography and uh, child abuse cases, which were the main right for me, I guess, um, in terms of being very confronted by what I saw. Um, a lot of organized crime, uh, just the sort of usual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, mean... the usual sort of transnational crime that you deal okay. with. <laughs> yeah. And and you're Australian. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. If, if anybody, if you couldn't tell from her accent. I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I just wanted to ask us because I know that like, as you know, when I was reading just your introduction, like you maybe had already had some uh, depression and some things going in, but what would you say that like your job was kind of a catalyst for maybe things getting a lot more extreme or difficult? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I didn't have PTSD or complex PTSD before I started that role. Um, I have always struggled a bit with mental health. I've suffered depression and suicidal ideation a lot in my life. Um, I think I first went on antidepressants when I was about 13 or so, um, which were obviously no good for me um, and no good for a lot of people that age, I believe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a a bit of an abusive relationship before my job either way um so that obviously didn't help as well but majority of my trauma and stuff comes from yeah my my role there um particularly the uh child abuse materials that I dealt with that's sort of really stuck with me um unfortunately in you know that manifests in different ways whether it's nightmares or flashbacks or whatever it might be um but yeah I mean I saw a lot of things in that job that were obviously wrong uh, morally, but it wasn't just the content that I saw. It was some of the processes um, and procedures and the way things are done in the intelligence community that also 
just didn't mesh well with me. Um, a lot of it just didn't <laughs> sit well with me internally. And I mean, I came, you know, I dedicated my life to that. I, I, I went through my studies with um, politics and international relations. I majored in national security and I devoted my life to that, that space, you know, and um, I guess moving into, into the, that real world of it after studying and, and doing all the work that I'd done, it was, um, you know, there's a way it should be and there's a way that it is. So the reality of it's very different. People seem to think that Intel's this sexy James Bond job, you know, and yeah. um, it's very much not. Uh, <laughs> it's very much not. <laughs> there's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> I, I literally um, do just to your point right there. When I think of, when I think of an intelligence job, uh, James Bond is not what comes to mind, but it's the uh, the Bourne movies, like Jason Bourne, yeah. and, uh, the Bourne identity. And I always think of like when they're like when they're after him, and they set up that whole the room, and everyone's at a computer, and you know, and they've got like <laughs> cameras, you know, they're they're checking every CCTV camera in every town, and then the guy is like, oh my god, that's Jason Bourne, and that's <laughs> that's has, and I know that uh, Hollywood always makes jobs seem like way more uh kind of flashy than you know the reality of it oh can i ask you uh, just like because a lot of what you just said and I, do, I don't have a ton of uh understanding of what it means like what of what complex post-traumatic stress disorder means but in a um in a way like kind of what you were explaining there it's not something that's caused necessarily by one major event but by a series of events is that uh, a correct good way to put it yeah yeah i mean it's complex ptsd is usually associated with childhood trauma um repetitive childhood trauma generally sexual childhood trauma um i mean it's it's something that can be reoccurring and and more than just the one single event um you know i've got i know people who've been in car accidents and from that one event have extreme ptsd and that's completely understandable but um the complex side of it comes from either repetitive exposure to or vicarious trauma as well so in my case i was exposed to a lot of confronting materials over over a long period of time so uh yeah. that's sort of it's not an easy you know when it comes to therapy as well you know it's not just sitting down and talking about that one single incident it's sitting down and attempting to talk about thousands of incidences that that then you know when you're talking about that and there's so many of them it just gets too overwhelming and it's um it's quite difficult to work through so yeah it's it's generally repetitive trauma or vicarious exposure to something yeah okay cool so i think i understand it a, a little bit better now and that's so that's the the reason why you add complex is that yeah and yeah. Is, is that different than like maybe what so like what a lot of veterans might have like a soldier might have experienced just one particularly bad experience in combat that was and so that's a different type of PTSD is I mean I don't want to sound so completely ignorant but also No. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, yeah, essentially um I mean veterans and first responders um I mean, it, it comes down to their psychiatrist in terms of their diagnosis, essentially, you know, which is um, kind of the weird thing. Um, but I mean, you look at an ambulance driver who who rocks up to to a car accident with someone decapitated multiple times a week, potentially, the fireys who go and cut people out of cars or, you know, are pulling burnt bodies out of houses. And that's a repetitive thing over their careers. Yeah. Um 
Same with soldiers, you know, they get sent on deployment for 11 months, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but, you know, then they come home and they, they get sent back over again for another tour. And it's um it's that sort of built up trauma without any, without any assistance or without any debrief, I guess, in, in the meantime. And I think veterans have a particularly difficult time with, um, and I'm, I guess it goes across first responders as well. Anyone in that space where, if they speak up about their mental health or the issues that they're facing with their mental health because of their job, that can mean getting fired. You know, that can mean losing their job, being deemed mentally unfit for their position anymore. Um, so I guess you can see why a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't speak out about it um, with potentially losing their job. And for a lot of people, especially in the military, that that's a sense of their identity that gets taken away as well. So it can be a very traumatic it can be very traumatic having severe trauma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the flow on effects yeah. just sort of ripple out further and further. And, um, you know, it affects everyone in, in your life. And yeah. And I guess too, like <clears throat> you're meant to compartmentalize in a lot of these jobs we're talking about. And it's, it's a culture of that too, where they're like, well, you know, you just, you lock that away in a certain part of your brain. And then you've got, you know, you've got your, your work self, and then you've got the, the really, really dark side of work. And then the, maybe the, brighter sides of work and then you got your family and your your leisure time and all the stuff but the thing is you know brains brains don't literally have compartments <laughs> and exactly so that's going to it's going to affect you and it's going to it's going to seep into all facets of your life which i think maybe we'll get into a little bit later too when we start talking more about therapies and you know understanding that we are people as a whole and so you know, um, your worst memory or your worst traumatic experience, it's, you know, it's something you might carry with you, but there are ways to work through it and work with it. And also maybe to gain a higher understanding uh, that's, you know, a lot of what I believe with uh, psychedelic therapy and stuff too, is looking at the world through a brand new perspective. I actually wanted to ask before we jump all the way to, you know, the story in Peru and all that <laughs> stuff, I, it, I just feel like it's, I should ask, what were some of the traditional treatments uh, for like depression and PTSD that you had tried before you tried uh, alternative treatment and plant therapy? Sure. Oh, wow. I feel like I tried everything. Um, I tried all a range of antidepressants. Um, I tried a range of any anxieties. I even got put on antipsychotics at one stage, um, which were not good for me in any way. You know, I wasn't in psychosis. Um, they got prescribed to me mainly to help me sleep. Um, I remember going to my psychiatrist one day of day five of no sleep. I um, My nightmares got so bad, I was absolutely terrified, like fucking terrified to go to sleep, you know? Yeah. And um, I would just try and stay awake as long as I could just to avoid that and hope that when I finally crashed, I would be that exhausted that I wouldn't have nightmares. And I remember going to see my psychiatrist on day five of no sleep and I was, you know, twitching a bit and sort of paranoid seeing shadows move and stuff, you know, from just a sleep deprivation. And um, he's a very good psychiatrist. He said to me, what day are you on? What day of no sleep are you on here? <laughs> and I was like, this is why I'm paying you the big bucks, you know. Yeah. Um, so he ended up giving, you know, giving me any psychotics to, um, to sort of knock me out and just, just give me that, that break. Um, but they were no help in terms of long-term, long-term treatment or anything. It was a, um, it was a very sort of snap of the moment decision. And I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for him for doing that at the same time, as much as I wouldn't like to take them again. Um, you gotta I am grateful. 
Yeah, yeah, I managed to finally, and I mean, it's not really sleep when you're just knocked out, you know, your brain's not doing all the processing that it usually does when you're having a good night's sleep. So it just kind of like shuts down entirely overnight. So you kind of wake up after 16 hours just feeling groggy and absolutely awful. And then you is realize an, where you are and what you're doing and it's all bad again. Is an antipsychotic, is that, is that a type of sedative? Is that why it, um, is that why it puts you to sleep? I'm not sure if it's exactly a type of sedative. I mean, I, I've i heard of people who are in psychosis being um, prescribed these, uh, an extreme high dose of the medication that I had. I had only 25 milligrams of the antipsychotic, and that was enough to knock me out. I've heard of people who are in psychosis having 800 milligrams of that in the morning just to function. So, I mean, I don't think it's a sedative as such, but it seems to work as, as a sedative for people maybe who aren't in psychosis. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, but that's sort of just what I can gather from. Um, I also tried a range of therapies, trauma therapies. I, um, I did EDMR therapy. I did exposure therapy, which was absolutely re-traumatizing. Um, Exposure therapy is uh, where you sit down and you you talk about your trauma in detail um, over and over and over again uh, till essentially you're desensitized to it. And I mean, if not to say that someone in a car accident, you know, has less trauma than me, but I mean, I feel it might work better for someone who has a single incident to work through as opposed to multiple incidences and ones that I really don't ever want to delve into again you know I, yeah. I understand that I have to it's you know I've had to to revisit those those memories and stuff to to sort of process them but to sit there in therapy for hours for you know 10 weeks at a time talking in depth about child pornography is just not something I want to do nor is it something that's been helpful or healing for me in any way so I mean after a quite a few sessions with that I I just canned it because I, I just couldn't do it it's I just couldn't do it I know yeah, it's helping a... a lot of people <laughs> oh yeah and that's for some people uh like yeah uh different forms of talk therapy are like are very very extremely uh helpful uh like cognitive behavioral therapy uh yeah I don't know much about exposure therapy which we were just discussing but I do know some about uh EMDR and mm. uh I've I know that there's there's more than one way to do it there's uh I know that they can do it with lights and they can do it with tactile. So I don't know which one you experienced. There's one I know. I just you... had a ruler. So oh, really? <laughs> I just had <Okay>. my psychologist <laughs> literally just held up like a ruler and was like, just watch this and let's talk about your trauma. And I was like, okay. well, I guess, I guess anything sounds... works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess so. But um, it's rather distracting, you know, and I guess that's kind of the point, but I mean, I've got ADHD, so I don't need any more distractions. Than I, you know? <laughs> I, uh, I see a light flash and I'm completely off anyway, you know. So, I mean, a ruler in front of me, it's it's distracting. It. It's very difficult. It's quite difficult. But, again, it's worked It's worked brilliantly for some people. And um, it's it's an amazing therapy when, you know, when, when I first heard about it, I was, I was like, how does that work, you know? And I, I'm not going to question it because how do psychedelics work? You know, how do they, yeah. the, the yeah. mystical side of it, you know, there is something that I'm, I'm never going to delve into a question too much, but um, well, my, yeah. what, what, what little understanding I have of, of EMDBR is uh, I do not remember the name of the, of the person who invented it, but I believe what I think what she had done was she was walking while walking going a dog. Yeah. While going through 
going over some kind of uh, very difficult psychological issue and focusing on the left, right, left, right steps. And because of yeah. that distraction, it created a new pathway to looking into this old problem in a brand new way and creating a new new perspective, which is like what we're kind of what we're here to talk about. So, yeah. I, uh, so, yeah, like we're not definitely we're not uh, throwing any shade on any of these other forms of not at you know, all. It's just it's you know, it's just it's what works for who, you know, and like definitely. I said, with your social therapy, that doesn't sound fun at all. But I imagine that. I mean, I wouldn't have heard of it if it hasn't worked for some people. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of the gold standard for tra for treatment for PTSD, exposure therapy. Um, it's sort of the best that we've got at the moment, you know, besides psychedelics. Um, and I mean, I know a few Afghan veterans who have come a long way with exposure therapy. So, I mean, it, it definitely works for some people. But again, that's just sort of the the whole mindset and the issue with the whole mindset around PTSD and trauma in itself that we can have a couple of therapies that are just going to work, you know, and it's like this cookie cutter approach. It needs to be individualized because what works for some person might not work for another person. And even if they have the exact same sort of traumas, again, they might not respond to that therapy in the same way. So it's, you just need more options, essentially. It's the options that people need. Yeah. I, I kind of guess I maybe like kind of skipped over a slightly crucial part, but it was, uh, did you have a, um, kind of, a, I don't know if it was a moment or just maybe over a period of time, did you realize that your mental health was being affected by your job and did you decide to leave or, um, how did that yeah. kind of shake out? Yeah, I left that job, um, with quite a, in quite a bad way. I, um, my nightmares had started. Um, I was, getting very depressed. I was working very long hours. I was often in the office alone um, late at night. I I would be working through, you know, these cases that were really confronting. And I guess the intel space is, is quite a complex space to work in that the support in in that space at work is not as it's, it's not ideal in my eyes. Um, I mean, I worked alongside, you know, state policing's intel branches on on some of these cases and you know come 5 p.m the guys in, in the police would be like all right well we're going to go play our hour of touch football that we're going to go play because that's what we do at the end of the day when we're dealing with content like this all day we have to have a debrief a fun moment before we go home so we don't take all this home with us yeah um and i mean we didn't have that you know we're an intel the there's no, there's no questions around that even if there are questions around support for people in intel intel's not going to be like this is what we do you know that's a very closed door very very sort of closed off uh space to work and that sort of made me feel even more isolated like you guys are all going to go play touch football and it's great and i'm stoked that you guys get to do that after work but i'm going to sit here for another few hours on my own just going through this work because i have to i hate to interrupt you with a with an idiotic question but i have to know in Australia, do you mean when you say football? Do you mean what I think you mean, like what I mean by football, or do you? Because no. <laughs> you're saying touch football, which, like as a kid, we had a, it's they, we had a game called two hand touch, which is football where there's no tackle. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, but, pretty much, yeah. It's like okay, rugby but, league. Are you guys playing with? A, well, I guess what I'm asking: Are you playing with a soccer ball? Or are you actually playing? No, with not football? soccer. <laughs> <laughs> not soccer no we call soccer soccer here too um <laughs> okay i didn't know that you, you, okay I, I just i was unaware of like how 
because you know everyone in Europe says football and football, yeah, and everyone in South America says football, and just yeah, I didn't know how, like where you guys were at with that. I just so I know that was a really silly <laughs> thing to break in, but my I wasn't not going to be able to get much further without because it was gonna <laughs> it was gonna drive me nuts not knowing what what you meant by football. <laughs> I think we have we've got too many different types of football here for soccer to be included as football. So we have enough we have enough footballs to you know decipher between. Um, so no soccer is soccer here, thankfully for us. Okay. <laughs> or else that okay. would get super. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and yes, and you guys are like a big rugby nation too, right? Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Plus AFL, Australian Football League is um I think the most. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it's the most popular of the footballs here in Australia. Um. It's a pretty rough game, but all football is, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, that was a, a tangent that I just totally took you on for. <laughs> well, you were in the middle of saying something very important. The uh, you're saying fine. so, like the cops you're working with, they get to go out. You know, they're they're working it out. Also, like in a, in a team sport, so that's got to help. And it's a rough yeah. game. That's got to help. You know, get get it out. Yeah. But like for you know your job position you're still sitting in front of a computer, still looking at, you know, I just assume pretty disturbing information and images. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not, it's not ideal for anyone to be in that situation. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't request to work on cases like that. Um, you know, in the police force, you have to request to work in a team like that. You have to request it. Then you go through rigorous psychological testing to make sure that you're going to be able to, you know, you don't have childhood trauma. You're going to be able to work in that space effectively. Um, and they have, you know, weekly debriefs. They've got all these things in place that that the person in that job knows what they're in there for. They know what they're doing. They've signed up for it, you know, whereas I was working on just a range of here and there cases. And when things came across my desk that, yeah, I wasn't prepared for, it was... um it's confronting, you know, it's really confronting. And, um, you know, I don't have kids, but I've got young nieces and, um, you know, it just hits a bit harder to, it just hits home a bit harder then. Um, just thinking what if, which is not something I ever want to think about, but, um, you know, you can't help but think that when you see how unfortunately common it is, not just in Australia, but overseas, especially overseas, it's, um, it's outrageously common and you know in particular the way that we handle it here um you know convicted child sex abuse um it's a very lenient punishment and um that's sort of that's a big part of how you know it's it's not traumatizing knowing that they get low sentences but it's traumatizing knowing that you can't do more yeah and that you can't do more for you know the trauma's already happened to the kids whatever it might be it's um it's just knowing that you've done your best and seeing them, you know, potentially get out with a six month sentence and on parole in four months. It's, um, it makes you kind of feel like, why do we bother? And, um, why aren't we taking this more seriously? And, you know, in, in this country right now, especially in New South Wales in a state in Australia here, you can get sentenced maximum up to 25 years for getting caught with magic mushrooms. You and you serious? look at, God, that's... yeah, yeah, it's all state based. So every state has a different, um, you know, a different view on on drugs and their drug policies are all different. Um, <clears throat> however, they upped they upped it recently, you know, a couple of years ago, New South Wales increased the punishment for it. And, you know, I, I've just come out of working in the prison space as well and, and seeing the sentencing around 
child pornography or, or, or pedophilia, however you want to put it, the sentencing around that in comparison to things like having magic mushrooms or having a second offense for, for speeding, you know, is just, it's, it blows my mind. It's, yeah. um, it's absolutely outrageous, really. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's egregious. It's upside down. I, yeah. Uh, hold up. It's time for an announcement. You know those memes that say things like, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. Those are really funny. The problem is, if I drink too much coffee, it gives me a little anxiety and I might even start getting paranoid and think that people are recording my conversations and putting them on the internet. Anyone could listen to them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's why I've been drinking a shot of Magic Mind in the morning instead of a pot of coffee. The great thing about Magic Mind is that it's a little green shot that helps give you energy and focus to have a productive day with all natural ingredients like matcha. Matcha contains way less caffeine than coffee and also contains additional compounds called catechins that extend the benefits of caffeine by slowing your body's ability to absorb it as well as a compound called L-theanine that reduces stress. It's got ashwagandha, an adaptogen that reduces stress and anxiety. Lion's mane mushrooms, yet another nootropic and adaptogen. It reduces anxiety and inflammation while also supporting cognition by preventing neural degeneration and stimulating neural regeneration. Plus, a ton of other cool nootropic mushrooms that I can't easily pronounce, but you could easily read in the ingredient list by going to magicmind.co forward slash own. And then see for yourself how easy it is to pronounce the names of these plants and mushrooms, smarty pants. And then use promo code MyViewsAreMyOwn for up to 56% off your first order. Once again, that's magicmind.co forward slash MyViewsAreMyOwn, promo code MyViews. And now back to the interview. For me, I've never seen any like real... I'm a, I'm a sensitive person. I, I'll admit that. And like, I have feel things kind of like a little too much. So even when I'm just watching a movie that's complete make-believe, you know, and there's certain stuff in it, I get infuriated at, you know, completely <laughs> made up at, at actors. <laughs> that are yeah. just, yeah. Just, so, so I'd really, t I, I admit that I don't have a true understanding of what your job would have been like dealing with real life stuff. That's like, that's that, I mean, disturbing and painful to look at and all this stuff, but, but moving forward, I mean, I, I obviously I, I'm doing, I'm doing my best to have the empathy to, it's like, I guess what I'm saying is I get it and I don't. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, it's hard. I, I understand. Yeah. After, so after you left, but uh, I guess quitting that job was not like an immediate alleviation, right? Cause like, cause no. once you've already, once you've kind of opened the, the Pandora's box of, PTSD it's open and that's just kind of how it is am I right yeah yeah I mean you don't just leave the job and you're fine if that was the case our veterans would be very healthy mentally yeah. <laughs> it's um yeah I mean I I left the job and I I sort of just spiraled down into this depth of depression and just suicidal ideation I just locked myself away at home on my own and you know I was I was single at the time and I I mean, I, I just had my blind shut at home. I, I was too scared to leave the house. I wasn't sleeping. I was depressed. I was suicidal. I 
I was having flashbacks in public, which made me really isolate myself more at home. Um, I got really scared and kind of really embarrassed to to leave the house with the potential of what if I have a flashback, you know? Um, yeah. And I mean, my triggers I learned about in public, <laughs> yeah. which were hard. Um, and, and the triggers themselves are not something I could avoid either, you know? It was... Um, it's a particular pitch or a tone of a child screaming or crying. You know, it's not all kids screaming and crying. It's just, uh, I, I can't explain it. I'll, I'll, I'll hear a pitch or a tone. I, um, I remember I was grocery shopping one day, um, and a little, probably three-year-old kid came up behind me and just screamed at the top of his lungs. And it immediately sent me into a flashback and I, I, I turned around, I looked at him and I looked at his mum, who was like kind of horrified that he'd done that, you know, but I was in this flashback and I just, I screamed at her and I was like, what are you doing to him? You know? And I dropped my basket and I ran out and I just sat in my car crying and crying and crying and I was shaking and I couldn't do anything. I was just so horrified at what had happened and what I felt that I was back in, in that moment. Um, and God, the worst part was she had parked her car directly next to mine. Oh, car no. park, uh, of course. <laughs> which I didn't know, of course. And, you know, I was sitting there just like shaking and crying. And I mean, I'm, I'm really thankful that she she didn't take it personally, you know, and she could see that there was clearly something wrong with the situation when I ran out because um, she yeah. came up to my window and she knocked on the window and, you know, I put my window down. She just wanted, she just asked, are you okay, you know? And um, that was a really that was a really comforting kind of moment for me as well. And I just started apologizing like crazy, you know, but I couldn't even really explain myself. I said, I'm just, I'm just so sorry that, that, that happened. You know, there was nothing else I could say. I couldn't explain what had happened. I, I, yeah. So, I mean, I had, I was having flashbacks, which, which I couldn't control. And, um, you know, a, a child screaming can happen anywhere in public. It can, it can happen absolutely anywhere. So, I got really scared to leave the house and to 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 yell at someone accidentally again or to to run out crying or to embarrass you know I felt embarrassed and rather ashamed about it all cuz you know you do go through that that mentality of I'm weak I should have been able to handle this better um you know I don't feel that now of course that's that's taken a while to work through but I mean it it's hard you know you're like I I've been trained for this I've worked this and like now I can't do this anymore I can't I can't do what I feel I was put on this earth to do, you know? And yeah. I mean, that, that, that brings a whole nother range of identity sort of crisis moments that you're like, who am I now? I, I identified my work was who I was. And I, you know, I dedicated my life to studying that into, you know, I volunteered on a national security think tank for four years before my role. And I put so much into that. It's like, and I, I see the dangers now of associating your, your job and everything that you do too much with who you are, because when that was gone, I was, I was not only dealing with complex trauma and the symptomology of that, but I was dealing with this, like, uh, who am I? Like, what am I doing? What has happened? How, like, how have I gotten here? And why can't I do what I used to be able to do? So it's just this shame spiral that <laughs> continues down further and further. And, um, it affects all these other parts of your life that you then judge yourself on and, you know, you feel like you should be able to get through grocery shopping, you know. I should yeah. be able to go to the <laughs> shops and not yell at some woman and a kid. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it got it got very bad. Um, <clears throat> In 2018, yeah, I attempted suicide. Um, 
I those antipsychotics that I had been given, I I, I stashed a, a massive amount of them into me, and um, I'm I'm I mean I'm not intent I'm not sure a hundred percent what my intentions were with that. Um, but my partner at the time, my boyfriend at the time, noticed that I was sort of slurring and not really coherent, so he took me to hospital, and um, yeah, that sort of I sort of remember just lying in bed in the hospital with these psychiatrists and crisis teams and stuff coming over and it was just like I can't I can't keep doing this I just I I can't live like this this is no way to live I have no quality of life and and look at where I am now you know I'd moved cities by then I moved to Sydney from from Canberra in um in the in the Australian Capital Territory I moved three and a half hours into into Sydney and I guess kind of running away from my old space my old life my old job um and I mean, it didn't help, of course, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, it was kind of refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, I was in Sydney all alone, you know, trying to, I was nowhere near family or anything. And I mean, I chose to do that, you know, and it, it was good for me in a sense at the time, but um, yeah, things got pretty dark when I, when I was there for sure. Um, is Around this time, is this when you had first heard about ceremonies and, um, uh, oh. In Peru, or, or were you were you already aware of this, or is this kind of like was it new? Yeah, to you? Oh, you were already. Um, aware? I mean, yeah, I've been doing some research. I mean, after you know a lot of failed therapies and sort of getting nowhere, I um, I started looking into yeah alternative treatment, and um, I mean, I'm just lucky that I stumbled upon ayahuasca. Um, and Graham Hancock was particularly influential. Um with his videos, particularly around ayahuasca and, and what to expect and that sort of stuff. And um, I remember lying in the, in the hospital bed after my suicide attempt, just lying there and looking off to the wall, staring, thinking like, this is your last option. You know, you've got, you've got one last chance at this and you need to go to Peru and you need to try ayahuasca. And if that doesn't work, then yeah, I'll, I'll just disappear into the jungle and, you know, not, not come <laughs> back. Um, yeah yeah well, yeah so I mean I'd, I'd researched it and and that's sort of when I made the decision that you know I think it was like a month later I was on a plane to Peru on my own I was just like I need to fucking do this get the fuck out of here and just get on a plane and just go um and it was hard you know I was in a really bad space in that in that moment a lot of people sort of rock up to these places in Peru just like disheveled and broken you know yeah. um so I, you know, I, I think I cried on the whole plane from Sydney to Chile, <laughs> just like, what am I doing? And oh, I've got nothing. And if this doesn't work, you know, there's all these just anxiety fueled thoughts going through my head. And you just made arrangements and you just left on your own on a plane. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I did a lot of research into, you know, a, a safe space. I, I spoke to a few people. I actually had a cousin in America who, um, had been over to Peru to, to drink ayahuasca probably I think it was like six months before I went. So, I mean, I was able to get in contact with him and have a chat with him about it, which was super helpful. Um, but, yeah, I really looked around at, at, at different retreats and I picked one that I felt was reputable and appropriate for me at the time. And, and it was, it was, it was absolutely, it was absolutely amazing. It was everything I needed. It was a loving, supporting environment and, yeah, I mean, it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. <laughs> I know that it's practically impossible to describe 
an, an ayahuasca experience to especially to people that have never had such an you know i've you know like i personally i've had a, a mushroom experiences and lsd experiences and i know you know all these are all in the same realm of you know but sure. uh can you share just like <clears throat> i mean how you remember it like to the best of how you remember it like what was your experience when you went through the ceremony yeah yeah it's a very sacred ceremonial traditional thing you know it's a really it's a really beautiful shamanic tradition and um i think i was most taken aback by just the tradition around it you know i guess living in australia our history goes back or you know our white history goes back not long um and so you know having having mystical traditions and and ceremonial things you know it's just not in in it's just not been in my realm i've not been exposed to things like this um i mean it's a very it's a very daunting process i guess it can be you know you um you enter the maloka the the big room that you're in and there's a couple of shamans there sitting there you're um it's a very quiet very respected space um you'll sit in meditation for sometimes half an hour you can sit there doing breath work you can sleep if you want it's up to you however you want to prepare mentally for it um i usually sit there and meditate and sort of speak to myself about my intention what what intention i'm setting for ceremony um and I mean, then you you'll you'll be given your cup of ayahuasca and you'll lie back, and the shamans drink ayahuasca first, and uh, then you get yours. And about forty five minutes later, in the dark, you you'll hear the the shamans start to sing their ikaro, which is a beautiful, absolutely beautiful song. Um, they they each sing a unique ikaro, which they you know is that they're healing songs. Um, and that can really jet you off. That alone can really jet you off into another realm. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, during your, your, your ceremony, the, the shamans will come and work with you individually. They'll sit with you. They'll sing with you. They'll touch you. They'll, they'll do a range of smoke ceremonies. They'll, you know, blow mapacho on you. They'll spit aqua de florido onto you. It's <laughs> a, um, a floral oil. Um, and you know they'll they'll be there when you're you're absolutely breaking down if that's what you're going through, which is something definitely that I did. Uh, <laughs> did you feel like yeah. you were, uh, that you had any kind of resistance to the experience? The yeah, I mean, my first ceremony I've I've done I think eleven ceremonies now. I've been back to Peru since my first trip. I've been back not too long ago. Um, there was definitely resistance at the start, um, you know, but that's something I'd really looked into and really researched sort of the the importance of being able to let go. And I remember sitting there in my first ceremony holding my cup of ayahuasca, just just trying to set my intention. And it was just like, please just be up, let me be able to let go. And that that's sort of what my intention was to just please guide me safely and to 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 let me be able to let go so that I can fully, you know, get into this this beautiful moment. And um it, it took a while. It took a couple of ceremonies for me to be able to do that. Um, you know, you're definitely feeling the effects and you're purging, you know, you're vomiting and um, the vomiting alone can be extremely healing. Um, it's, <laughs> I know that sounds a bit crazy. A lot of people <clears throat> wouldn't like that. Um, but I mean, my last ceremony that I had um, not too long ago, you know, was um, 
that was really intense. I mean, I purged. I was vomiting for quite a while and I guess I was, you know, you're having these visuals at the same time and there was a lot of dark snakes and vines and, you know, and stuff coming out of my mouth and, and prickly, viney, just horrible things just coming out. And, I mean, you can you can view that however you want to view that, but I see yeah. that as, as some dark shit that I needed to get out, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I'd purged previously in ceremonies and it had never been like that before. I really felt like some deep, dark shit was coming out and I felt so light after that moment, you know. Um, <clears throat> the rest of that ceremony got wilder, but... um it's the little things that you can sort of stop and appreciate during ceremony. It's like, I feel light or I feel like my heart's opened again and I, I feel love or I feel, you know, self-love is a big part of it. Self-compassion and self-empathy, you know, these things that I, well, I did not know how to do that before. I wasn't, I mean, I knew I knew I needed to love myself, but the whole concept of developing self-love and really fostering that was something that, I, I couldn't do, you know, I didn't know how to do. And even just in ceremony, it's being able to sit there and just with those moments and focus on those moments of I actually feel something that I haven't felt in years. You know, I yeah. I feel like my heart is exploding open to everyone and everything. And again, something that I had never experienced, but all these emotions came flooding in, you know, these things that I had been pushing away for years in trying to just deal with my trauma, you know, just... I can't mentally deal with any more emotions right now yeah. and I'm going to block these out. And yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're able to breathe in that space and, and feel those things, you're like, holy shit, like this is what I've been missing out on. And I need to feel these things. I need to feel these things to be human and to feel human and to, to connect with myself, you know, to be able to connect deeper with myself and work through things with myself and, to support myself and have my own back during those moments, you know, it's, um, that's sort of some of the beautiful moments that you get from, from, from healing with psychedelics, I think is, um, is this self-love and this ability to sit with it and appreciate, you know, everything in your life and appreciate that you're alive and you're connected to so many things and so many people and just things that I just couldn't see before I went there. It's yeah, it's blow it blows my mind still thinking about it. And honestly, to your point, you just made like things you can't see, like when you were describing uh, purging and it was obviously it was probably just food that you'd had in your stomach. That was very just <laughs> like, like that's what you were yeah. growing up. But I mean, but as you were seeing it and as you were experiencing it as being thorny snakes yeah. uh, in these, I I don't know if it had like you know a dark entity kind of vibe to it or just or just dark you know darkness and unpleasantness. But the thing is, that's what you know. That's why it's so important to get the psychedelic therapy into you know further and further into a, a mainstream place where we can start to like you know more the more people that could experience it, the more that it can be uh, done in hospitals and uh, yeah. healthcare places because you know the mind is is ineffable and we don't there's no way that i can tell you that what you saw isn't what you saw because how would i know because i would because i'm i'm on what whatever plane of vision and perspective i'm particularly on right now and when you take a very powerful psychedelic you see you know you you have a brand new perspective and i don't i'm just curious about maybe a couple of other things maybe that you would add some of these other experiences that a lot of people report 
which is a one, I don't know if you maybe, did you feel like at any point, did you experience anything that was kind of like a dissolution of the ego where you kind of became? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say my last ceremony, I really experienced this. It's, um, you know, they, it's the whole ego death thing. Um, I, my last ceremony, it was funny. I was asked the next morning in our sharing circle, you know, how was your ceremony last night? And all I could say was like, I'm just glad I'm not dead. You know, (laughs) I can't believe I made it through that ceremony. And I'm so thankful for the facilitators, particularly one in particular, you know, I, I I was so in this depth of craziness and I I couldn't even, you know, they say if you need help during ceremony, just knock on the floor and someone will come. I just, I couldn't even do that, you know. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know who I was. I was like, I, I was dying kind of, you know. And yeah. um, Rachel came and sat with me, this amazing, brilliant facilitator, and she held my hand and I remember I just mustered up the words. I'm like, please don't leave me, you know. Like, I yeah. need you here. <laughs> I'm dying. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you have these these moments where you, you might think you're dying, or you might you might see whatever it is that you can interpret in 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 that ego death, or and it's it can be fucking terror. It's absolutely fucking terrifying at the time. I'm not going to sugarcoat an ayahuasca trip because it is terrifying. It can be confronting. It can be shit scary. But it's it, you know the importance, I guess, is is the integration afterwards and how you can can you can view your experience and how you can can see it in a positive way you know i'm a big believer of there's no bad trips there's just really hard ones um yeah and i know that's hard for some people to to wrap their head around if they've had a a ceremony where they've envisioned themselves having their head cut off or being wrapped up in snakes or whatever it might be you know um i understand it's hard to to try and put a narrative on that that moment that is healing and that can can help you um but it's really that's the important side of it for me anyway is knowing that I can sit down and I can generally pair up sort of what that might mean for me and whether it is just a dark energy I feel is leaving me you know or if it's uh I've I've relived I've relived traumas I relived I've relived some witnessing of child abuse materials um in in ceremony and I was able to witness that from an objective perspective you know I didn't have the emotional connection to that moment it's like I was kind of hovering above it and it allowed me to process that without having to to delve super deep and get super upset about it again um so I mean I was able to relive traumas and process them which is something that god I have been dying and trying to do in therapy for how long you know um I also had a friend who had committed suicide not long before I went to Peru the first time who visited me during ceremony. And I know, I know <laughs> it's hard to talk about these things without going, people think I'm crazy, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it is, you sort of learn to share only a few things from ceremony when you come back. Cause you, you need to protect that space, that, that healing space you're in. If you yeah. tell someone that is just going to roll their eyes at you and be like, yeah, right. Um, you know, that can be damaging to your healing process. Um, so you kind of learn to really <clears throat> only mention small things to a select few people. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'll, I happily sort of talk about this now. I don't feel that, you know, I'm sure people think I'm crazy. That's fine. With, I don't care. Um, you know, I think we're all a bit mad. <laughs> I think, like, um, like I said, like going into it with the, with the little preface of, I know that it's practically impossible to explain this. Yeah. Uh, the, the length, you know, our words, you know, just our verbal language is inadequate to describe what you experience. 
And I, I wanted yeah. to go to an, another thing you said too, just an irony about the terror aspect and how it could be terrifying. But so interestingly is that, you know, uh, psychedelic therapy can also be used in hospice in a lot of ways. So yeah, uh, terminal patients, people that might have uh, terminal cancer or some other disease. And it's just, and, and they're, and they're very, very afraid of dying and it's, yeah. and that's, what's, you know, so bad is because they're, they're spending their final uh, months, maybe weeks in this fear state. And that's mm-hmm. just a horrible way to have to go out is to spend every last moment in fear. And there's been so many times where, when people can have the access to it, of course, which, you know, it's sadly here in the United States, it's mostly outlawed. And obviously in Australia, as you said earlier, yeah. they have one state has a 25 year sentence for having mushrooms, which grow on the ground. But <clears throat> I uh, was going to say that these people like that just repeatedly over and over and over again, people with these terminal illnesses report after having a very profound and powerful psychedelic experience they have lost their fear of death. And yeah. a lot of that could be from the dissolution of the ego, realizing that that there is more to just how they how how we all uh consider ourselves this individual singular thing and that we are all yeah. actually part of something much larger and that there's even perhaps and I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want people to start thinking I'm crazy either, but like that there is a <laughs> that there's another a, a non-physical world that sure. is generally invisible to us in our day-to-day lives, but we, we, it can be seen. Yeah. And like, I, and like when I use the word "seen," also, like I said, the our, the English the English language is inadequate to describe what I mean by seen, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, you could say, or felt, or understood on some level. So definitely, definitely. I mean, the end of life. Um trials that they've been doing with psilocybin have just proven to be life-changing for majority of people that have gone through them i mean there is nothing worse than knowing someone you love is spending their last few weeks or months in terror you know or feeling scared to die or feeling disconnected from who they are or, or people and those loved ones around them um they you know this is sort of where a lot of the research has has started in that end of life space i think that's a safe space for researchers to start in their eyes um but it's also a very transformative space for them to work because my god look at the look at the research outcomes from some of these they've been absolutely mind-blowing you know and and you know that's pushed further on to to things for eating disorders and ocd and alcoholism and all these addiction in general and PTSD, depression, you know, those sorts of things. But um it's yeah, I think I think it was like they all reported that it was one of the top three experiences in their whole lives, the most profound moment in top three in the in their lives. And I think for people who experience that later in life, it's it's kind of sucky that they experience it, you know, if they if they're experiencing it in this end of life phase, but at least they get to experience it. You know, and that's a massive thing. Going out feeling safe and and loved and knowing that you don't have to be scared of anything is I think just what we all want yeah it's something that we all want to be able to do is is die happy knowing that we're connected and and we're not feeling scared and yeah 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 it's I mean that's what uh a lot of what religion is for and that's another thing too is uh, so many times I mean I know there's a an experiment that was it's looked it's looked down upon 
it's frowned upon by a lot of scientists. It was done by Timothy Leary. And I don't remember exactly the, it was called the, the Sunday service experiment, something like that, where he, he gave mushrooms to several people uh, in a church that were <laughs> doing a, a, a ceremony of some, of some, you know, a religious Christian ceremony. And he gave yeah. placebos to several people as well. Yeah. And everyone that had the mushrooms reported it as the most profound, you know, uh, really, you know, wow. in, 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 in their Christian faith too. Cause you know, set and sure. setting is so, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're, like you were saying, like the set and setting is, is everything. So, yeah. Uh, but not to go, I, that's, I'm not trying to talk about Timothy Leary right now. That's, that's not the road <laughs> I want to go down. What I wanted to it's ask is, it is fascinating. And I think he got a little bit of a, a raw deal uh, with how he was, you know, I think, well, you know, it's, it depends on who you talk to. I think some people still really, really appreciate what he's done for the, the world. And some people, you know, don't, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say was you know clearly for you having this experiment uh, sorry I said experiment experience and the ceremonies and coming back and especially from coming from from such a difficult place such a dark place and even from a place where you no longer wanted to live anymore because it life had gotten that hard uh your health and well-being you know mental health well-being maybe even physical health I don't know would you also say that just your life philosophies have they been affected and and if so, like, how would you say that's that's occurred? Yeah, I mean, I um, I I kind of view my life now as pre-Peru and post-Peru, um, just because the they are completely opposite ends of of the scale in terms of who I was and what I what I valued and and what I really felt was important in life. And um, I I mean, if I had never been to Peru, I would not be meditating. I would not be doing yoga. I would not be doing art therapy. I would not be doing all of these things that are just so so good for me. I would I wouldn't have have realized the vital importance of connection in not just family but in life. And there's all these little things that all these aspects of my life that have just improved tremendously post post Peru, um, both physical and mental health. Um, you know, I remember being able to sleep a full night when I got back from Peru and just waking up in the morning, like, super confused because I was like, I'm used to waking up five times a night in, in sheer terror, you know, or crying or, or screaming, whatever it is. I'm used to waking up like that. And to wake up calmly and it be daylight outside, you know, it's not the middle of the night. That was super, conf it was confronting in itself. It was super strange. I remember just thinking like, holy shit, is this my, am I going to be able to sleep? Like, is this my new life? <laughs> like, I remember feeling overwhelmed with happiness that I had slept a full night, you know. I was like, holy shit, this, I, I can't even explain how happy that made me feel. Just the confusion of waking up after eight hours sleep without waking up, you know, during the night, shit scared. Um, that, that alone was so amazing it was so amazing for me um not to mention I didn't I didn't want to kill myself when I came back I didn't feel like every day I just wanted to end things because things were too difficult I um I was able to connect with my family mostly you know more when I got back and that is so important for me you know um my family have always been so super supportive of me and I, I you know I ran off the rails when I was 17 a bit and 
I mean, they stood by every stupid decision I made, you know, they were always there and they always made it clear that they would always be there for me. And, um, you know, that's a really important thing in life to have, especially from a, a child's age and up. I just couldn't appreciate that before I went to Peru. I was like, yeah, you're always here, ditto, whatever, you know. Um, yeah, <laughs> like, we're, this is what we do, we're family. Um, but, I mean, just the importance of of connecting on a deeper level and sharing new things. Like, my, my funny, my mom has always my whole life been like, you should meditate, you should try yoga. And, you know, most of my life I've been like, I don't have yeah. time for that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I say if I told myself, you know, four or five years ago, whenever it was that I'd be meditating and stuff, you know, that I would have laughed. Um, and, you know, it's something that, that we've been able to connect deeply over since I've been back is we can meditate together and we can share these moments of of deep connection of things that are not only great for us, but really, we really enjoy doing them. And to be able to do them together is even more important for me. Um, you know, she paints with me now a lot, too um oh, uh, i've uh, recently uh, moved up oh sorry yeah okay. oh go, you go ahead i didn't want to interrupt you uh yeah no you're right um i've recently moved up to um to queensland to to help care for my mom my mom's got a, a fast progressing alzheimer's um so my my sister and her husband and kids are all up here and mm -hmm. i'm now up here with my partner and we're close and we're able to help out my dad with my mom more and you know having these moments of connection through painting or through meditation or you know no matter how far she declines, we can still have these shared moments and they're really, really special moments that we have together. So it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the thing I was going to say, was, I was just thinking when you were talking about with uh, meditation, yoga, painting, and with your mom, and also that you are a, a huge advocate for art therapy. And I just kind of was kind of curious if, uh, do you think that like maybe through art therapy, people can achieve a mind state that's maybe similar, just, in some way to uh, what people can experience with a psychedelic therapy. Is that, and I know that it's obviously. Very different. Very yeah. Different. Um, I mean, possibly, I mean, you know, people who meditate for 20 years say that they can get into states similar to, to psychedelics or similar to the after effects of psychedelics. Um, I've never been able to do that through meditation, um, but I know people can. So, I don't, you know, I've never experienced the sort of similar outcome. Well, I mean, I mean, it brings my mind silence. That's, that's, that's why I love to paint. And that's why when I took my first art therapy class, I just haven't stopped since then, you know, um, it, it really took, it, it takes into account your emotion, how you're feeling at the time. And you can, you can then apply a color to that. You can apply a texture to that. You can apply, you know, and you can then, then you start painting or drawing or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I'm now a fluid artist, so I, it's it's not all about sitting down and evaluating my emotions. You know, not every painting I do is art therapy, but I feel like there's art therapy in every painting that I do anyway. Um, it, it, it brings me into a nice, quiet space in my head. Um, and it's a, it, it's a therapy that I'm just so blown away that other people can enjoy, you know, it's, um, I can, I can sell my therapeutic outcome now, you know, yeah. if I want to, if someone wants yeah. to buy a painting, like I did this, it helped me mentally. It helped me feel better. It helped express creativity, you know, it brought joy and, and now someone actually is enjoying it and might, might want to purchase it as well. It's like, 
holy crap, like, yeah. <laughs> no other outcome <laughs> of therapy really has that. You know, I could sit in exposure therapy for so long and, um, you know, there's nothing like that that comes out of it. Um, I've also found a bit of joy with microdosing and painting. Um, I've done some microdosing with psilocybin and and that with my painting, it's um, it allows me to get into it, this flow this flow that you know I've, I've got a quite good flow with my artwork in general but there are days where I'm I just can't do what I want to do and I either then go jump in the ice bath or I might consider doing some microdosing again um the ice bath has been amazing for getting me mentally prepared for painting um particularly harder paintings that I really want to focus on or if they're commission pieces that have to be great <laughs> there's a lot of pressure around them um I'll go jump in my ice bath and that immediately grounds me and calms me and centers me. It's funny. I did, I did a little experiment with this. I, I did a really crap painting and I was like, I'm going to jump in the ice bath and do a painting directly after. Let's see the difference. The difference was phenomenal. Like it was, there was a big difference. I mean, I, before I had the ice bath, you know, I could see my hands sort of shaking a little bit when I was trying to paint and that was entirely gone. I was focused. I was present in that moment with my painting and the difference between post ice bath and before ice bath, you know, I just that alone is really cool to me. I'm is, I'm really interested. This is actually something I I have to know some more about because so like with a you know microdosing or taking mushrooms in a any capacity, whatever, it's not something that anybody needs to convince me about because I already know it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but but the uh the ice bath bath thing. This is something, this is actually, I know people have been doing it forever and ever and ever, uh, but it just came to my attention. There's, I know that I think maybe it's just gaining more popularity with people, like with, especially with, obviously it's but, been around with well, athletes forever. Uh, yeah. I've just been learning about it being something to also uh, alleviate anxiety. And so the thing is, the last thing in the world I want to do is go get in a, tub of ice it's like <laughs> it sounds it sounds so uncomfortable and unpleasant and but can maybe can you describe like so how does this work how does this how could this possibly be a good thing it sounds like you're just doing no. something torturous but uh, yeah. but i am open-minded and i'd love to hear how does the ice bath thing work? I mean, you said you I mean, <laughs> everyone seems to have their own method with ice baths. Um, and a lot of people get different, you know, different outcomes out of it. Um, I, yeah, I, I'll sit in there for about two minutes. Um, and I, I just sort of focus on my breath work. I'm, I'm able to, to calm my stress response, I think, is sort of the main thing for me, being able to get on top of that intense stress response that your body goes into when you're, you're exposed to, to cold like that. Um, you know, we, it's funny, my partner and I video our progress in that just for each other, you know, and um, you can see at the start for him there's a good 20 seconds where he's, like, hyperventilating, you know. He's like, <laughs> and it's like we need to get control <laughs> of those deep breaths and 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 as we progress we're able to sit in there and immediately just get into our deep breath work and so wait you stay I, I in, you stay in the ice bath long enough to do breath work well it's two i stay in for around two two and a half minutes so Whoa, it's, it's more just about so much worse than i thought I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> two, two and a half well, minutes is like it seems like an eternity in an ice bath okay i'm sorry it, i don't want to I'm, I'm here to learn i'm not here to interject 
<laughs> anymore. I'm sorry. It does sound like a long time. I mean, when I first started, I did 60, I was doing 60 seconds and um, it's a shock. It is. It's hard. It's, you know, 10 seconds in, you're like, has it been a minute yet? <laughs> um, I'm sort of learning now though, that the second, when I realize that I don't feel the need to just race out of there anymore, that's probably when I'm okay to get out. And that seems to be around the two, two and a half minute now for me. So I mean, it's um, it can feel like a long time and it's hard, but if you just focus on your breath work and sort of, I think there's a little bit of sense of pride that you can feel in 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 dominating your stress response, you know, especially with a history of trauma. My, my stress response has, has dictated so much of my life and so many of my actions and my behaviours that being able to, to get on top of that with something as simple as an ice bath, I don't have to go to Peru and drink psychedelics for that. I can yeah. just jump in my ice bath at home, you know. Um it's an amazing thing. And I mean, I started off with 30 seconds of a cold shower at the end of my showers, you know, and that's, that's a shock to the system after being in what, 38, 40 degree water, you know, um, oh, I think I, it's a really I live, good I live in America. They don't, they don't teach us Celsius. Yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> I don't know no. what any, any of those temperatures mean. Neither do I. <laughs> in Fahrenheit. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I get, no, it. I get so it. Hot shower. <laughs> yeah. Like, like a hot spa or something, you know, but okay, going, so, you know, so going... you're saying so like all right, so so you didn't go straight to just dumping a ton of ice in a bathtub full of cold water. You started out, you just do a shower, and then at the end you go like, all right, now this shower is gonna suck for yeah, 30, 30 seconds. seconds, and you just turn it freezing cold. Freezing then, cold, full ball. You, you just get out of and then you're, yeah. Okay. How yeah, and I mean how how long would you suggest like going through that phase before you're like ready to do like the real the real deal um i think it's i think i decided to venture in further with the, the ice baths after i was really noticing that that 30 seconds of cold water i was like i'd get out of the shower and i'd be like yes like what are we doing today i'm yeah. so pumped <laughs> and i'm centered and i'm focused and i'm ready you know like and I, I i i seem to do a lot of good thinking in the shower i don't know if that's if that resonates with anyone i have a lot of my good thinking and good thought time happens a lot when I'm showering. So um, when I have that last 30 seconds and I've had some like deep thoughts in the hour already, you know, I get yeah. out and I'm, I'm pumped. And so I guess I just wanted to to try the more extreme version of that and see if it did G me up even more, you know, or, or have different effects on me. And um, feeling pumped is something that I haven't experienced a lot in the past few years with having trauma and stuff to deal with. And yeah. even just having that, it was like, holy shit, I'm alive again. Like this makes me feel alive. And not only that, I don't feel wired. You know, when you, you get all pumped up and you're too excited and you feel kind of wired and you're like, I could do anything right now. And I hope, I hope I don't hurt anyone, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. It's like, yeah. it's like I'm pumped, but I'm centered. I'm calm. And I'm focused and I'm sort of on top of what I'm experiencing, which is, again, something that's been rather foreign to me in the past. So I think it's got a lot to do with just sort of feeling in control. Um, and I mean, a lot of having PTSD is trying to deal with feeling out of control and having no control over your reactions or, or nightmares, whatever it is. Um, so being able to control some aspects of your life is... Um, <laughs> It's a pretty big deal for people with trauma. Um, being able to control or feel calm and feel in control is just something I strive for, you know, because it has been so difficult and um, it can be so difficult to get there. So, yeah, I feel really good after an I, ice bath. 
I am so glad that I met you, honestly, because I've been like kind of hemming and hawing and just thinking about this. This has been going on for weeks, maybe even a couple months since the last time. Uh, I can't remember. It's some athlete that I uh, was following that was just like, you know, this ice bath like has improved my uh, performance, but also it's like if you've got anxiety, this really kicks it into gear too. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I and then you know how it is how the synchronicity with that is is like you see this one video and then then you yeah. hear someone say something about it, then you hear someone else say about it, <laughs> and then you and I have this com- this long conversation, very deep conversation about uh, you know all these really major experiences. And I'm a believer. I'm going. You have to do I'm, it now. I'm. I mean, I'm no. I'm. I'm not. I'm 100 committed to doing this. I'm going to start, yes. like you said, I'm going to start with the 30 minutes of uh, cold shower. 30 seconds. I mean, 30, oh yeah, 30, yeah, I, I oh said 30 minutes. <laughs> Don't freeze yourself to death. <laughs> okay, that would be like fatal. <clears throat> I'm going to do the 30 seconds and then I'm going to build up to it and I'm going to do it. And I I owe it to you, Holly. So thank you so yes. much. <laughs> and, Let me uh, know how you go. <laughs> hell yeah. And hey, man, hopefully I might even get a shot at going to Peru sometime and I'll let you know how that goes too. But I got to yes. tell you something, Holly, we are getting dangerously close to the lightning round. Oh, we are. Oh, so <laughs> I have to tell you, it's, it's, it's literally just, it's just a little bit of, it's a little part of the podcast where I just ask questions extra fast. You, okay. uh, but you're not supposed to think about it. You're just supposed to gut reaction, say the very first thing that comes into your mind. I think okay. there's a couple things done here. We might've actually already gotten into a little bit. In this. I feel like we, we went all around the world on some of these things. So I feel yeah. like <laughs> we're primed up for all these questions. Uh, okay. But if you're ready, I'm just going to get into the lightning round. Ready. Okay. <clears throat> first one. Uh, do you have a favorite book on psychedelic research? Oh, oh, I I should, but I don't. Um, I mean, well, look, uh, Dennis McKenna just released a new book. Paul Stamets just released a new book too recently. Um, I mean, any content from Paul Stamets, uh, Dennis McKenna, uh, Graham Hancock, you know, those those sorts of guys in that space yeah. is is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, oh, I just I literally forgot his first name. Stamets. What's his first name again? Paul. Paul. Yeah, I saw him in yeah. uh, the movie Fantastic Fungi. Yeah, very, very it's cool. And then also, I read a book by Michael Pollan called uh, "How to Change Your Mind," and yeah, he's, he's in that book uh, extensively as well. So yeah, he definitely sounds. Yeah. like he's a mycologist. So yeah, I highly yeah I second that notion of checking out anything he's written recently. All right, the so, king this of is, this is the round. I'm, I'm going slow. It's me. It's always me. It's always I'm always a slow one. All right. <laughs> What is the longest you've worked on a piece of art without stopping? Meaning like, not like how long did it take to finish, but how hours. long did you go? Hours? Definitely hours. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Four I get hours. really into uh, probably five or six. I, I sometimes get into these like hyper-focused modes where I'm embellishing a painting with with pens or really fine doodling on top of something. And I can sit there and it's like my house could be on fire and I wouldn't know, you know, I'm just yeah. hyper-focused has happened. I'm in and that's what I'm doing. And yeah, I've definitely done that for Nearly all day or all night before, yeah, definitely. Oh my god, I hope Six that uh, I hope these ice baths can help hook me up with some of that too because I can't come close to that. <laughs> I think like thirty oh. minutes might be about the longest <laughs> I can sit still. <laughs> all right, does art therapy include making music? For me, uh, no, I don't. I don't make music. Um, 
I do look I've done a lot of sound healing actually so I mean sometimes I'll sit with my crystal bowls and, and my Tibetan bowls and I'll play them first and then get into my painting um I do know a few artists who play guitar and sort of put their own music over the their artwork on you know online and stuff but um I've not I've not com combined the two really personally I guess so I mean besides you know little video clips and stuff that you make for content online it's um oh, yeah. I've never yeah I've never created music mostly, for my art so. mostly a visual medium yeah um okay i think we kind of touched on this a little bit still uh this is a, it is a different question uh do you think microdosing can be as useful as a traditional psychedelic experience uh i know that's no a tough one. no yeah no um and i mean i only say that because i feel like with those you're definitely hoping for two different outcomes or you're definitely in those in in those spaces for different reasons um microdosing is not gonna take you through or plunge you through into to another realm where you can be visited by friends who have committed suicide or relive traumas like that microdosing is not that it's that's not its intention either um i i can't compare the two in in any way i mean you can sure both lessen anxiety a little bit um but i mean it's microdosing is mostly sub sub perceptual, so you you shouldn't be having if you if you microdose and you're having visuals and stuff. It's generally you've taken too much. Um, yeah. it should be a, a small dose. Um, and you shouldn't be able to really notice it. But there are little aspects of your life that you do notice change a little bit. You know, I I felt less anxious that day, or I felt more into the flow of my artwork that day, or whatever it might be. Um, I, they are two very different things, and in, in my in my opinion, anyway, yeah, very yeah. different. There's no way I could paint during an ayahuasca ceremony. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I imagine not. Um, okay, last question, and it's kind of a tricky question, but I I think it's it's worth uh, just kind of putting it out there, like our various uh, opinions on this, and. Uh, for our respective governments. Why do you think that uh, psychedelic therapy is being blocked so harshly by uh, the governments from like, from keeping it out of uh, mainstream medical usage uh, research, even with, you know, the mountains of evidence that are, you know, happening every day. Sure. Um, well, I'm not sure if you've caught up lately with Australia, but we've uh, recently rescheduled and this is, this is the thing. We've rescheduled psilocybin and MDMA to be used for treatment-resistant depression and treatment-resistant PTSD. Now, that took a lot of advocating. We've been advocating here for that for a long time. There is a, an, a charity organization called Mind Medicine Australia who have been advocating for that rescheduling for, for quite a long time. Um I'm I'm obviously very connected with them. I'm I'm one of their lived experience panel members and I also help uh, I, I run the Veterans and First Responders chapter for Mind Medicine Australia with a, um, a, a another veteran friend of mine. Um, the way that it's gone is not what I would like to see, although I've been advocating for it. Um, I'm, I, I believe everyone should be able to access psilocybin and NVMA in therapeutic ways. I personally would have would like to see the decriminalization of nature in general. That's that's. That's my core belief is that we should be able to go out and if I want to try, try mushrooms and, and have a mushroom ceremony, 
I should have the freedom and the, the legal freedom to explore my own conscious and to, to explore my own altered states and, and, you know, my own therapeutic altered states. So, I mean, Australia has recently rescheduled psilocybin and MDMA for therapy. Um, it's very, it's very tight. It's going to be very tightly controlled. It's also sh showing that it's going to be very expensive, which is going to be out of the realms for the people that need it the most. Which is a big clash of how I feel about it all. Um, obviously, the people who need it most shouldn't have to pay $20,000 to get some mushrooms and sit down with a psychologist and psychiatrist for eight hours. You know, I don't care how many therapists you have in the room. It does not cost $20,000 to take someone through a few mushroom ceremonies. You know, I, I don't believe that. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hinder people accessing it. But your question essentially it's obviously the war on drugs from the start. It's, um, you know, there was a lot of promising research, especially Albert Hoffman, you know, back in, in the, in the forties, fifties, sixties, when they were doing research with, with psychedelics and it was proving to be a breakthrough industry. And obviously the war on drugs happens and it, it psychedelics and every drug, especially any plant based drug got obviously deemed to hell and, and said that they were just dangerous and, and we've just been following that bullshit narrative since, you know. It's um, especially in Australia, we're we're a middle power country, you know. We're not a, a superpower country, and we rely heavily on the US for support, um, whether it's military or, or political support. And we're always going to be towing the line behind them. And um, we've always sort of looked up to them, you know, as a country to to look up to. And we've put in place the same sort of things and i'm i mean everyone here especially in the in the medical community is is shocked that the tga rescheduled these to these two compounds recently we've been advocating for cr like crazy for it and they indicated that they were going to come out with the the mid report saying this is definitely not going to happen and it randomly got rescheduled i think it had a lot to do with a um a visit from Professor David Nutt from the Imperial College in the UK, who's like the father of psychedelic policy and um, getting real drug information out, you know, like, I mean, he lost his job in the UK for saying that alcohol was easily the most dangerous drug. And I mean, they fired him for that. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> he came over yeah. and did a, a, <laughs> the crazy crap. He came over and did a brilliant talk to the TGA and the gang government and ministers and health ministers and stuff. And I mean, it got rescheduled. So, he has been very influential in that. Um, but again, we're, we're all in the same boat there because of this, you know, the, the war on drugs and and the, the bullshit narrative that's been fed around that. And I mean, all you all anyone has to do is look at the research that's coming out. It's it's undeniable. You cannot deny that psychedelics have a place in medicine anymore. You just can't. And I love that we're at that that position. I really do. Yeah. Um, it excites I mean, me, you know. There, and, yeah, there is there is hope. <laughs> yeah yeah and especially when you know i've got veterans and first responders coming to me talking to me about this stuff like i want to access it i like i've tried everything and it's like i understand where you are man i understand what you're going through and i mean given it's still quite a few months off for you know the rescheduling to take place and i mean there's a lot of barriers and red tape that psychiatrists have to go through and stuff before anyone can even consider getting it done so I mean, I've still got people that are coming to me saying, I need help now. You know, I, I can't wait four months for when this gets rescheduled or for when my psychiatrist might get approved to be using these medicines. I can't wait that. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've, I've helped veterans get overseas um, to Peru to very trusted families um, and Shipibo owned 
plant medicine retreats, which I think is very important that they are not owned. I mean, it's not to say that they shouldn't be owned by Americans or Australians, whatever it is, but knowing that there are Shipibo, Indigenous Shipibo people running and owning their own centre and being able to help them mm -hmm. is so much more important for me. So, I mean, I've I've sent a few veterans and, and first responders. We've all had these big sort of circles where we can talk about preparation and we can talk about what we need to go, do to get there in terms of food, you know, diet and getting off meds and, and that sort of stuff. And, I mean, I, I, I'm purely there for the education side of it in terms of preparation. I'm not going to tell someone to get off any psychotics or any depressants. That's not my place. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we just sort of talk them through that preparation stuff and knowing that they're going to a safe place and that they've, they're going somewhere that has been personally recommended by a few people, including myself. It's, um, it's a lot more comforting for them. Um, I found myself helping book plane tickets with some of the guys because they just they struggle to even book a, t a ticket online because their anxiety is just too much and you know it gets overwhelming and sometimes I'm on the phone two weeks you know every single day in the lead up to them leaving um, but just hearing sort of being in touch with them when they return and especially the partners of these people you know I had a, a veteran return not too long ago and he called me when he landed in Melbourne and his wife was in the background and she just screamed he's a he's a new man he's a changed <laughs> man like I could just hear this happiness in her voice and my heart just exploded you know I just felt I just felt so happy for them you know and I was just all these thoughts of He's going to get to sit and hold his wife and kids feeling present now, you know. He's not yeah. going to have this anxiety-fueled stress body and mind and he's going to be able to be present with his kids and his wife in these moments that, you know, some of these guys have trauma from the 90s, that if not earlier, and it's like they've not been able to do that with their partners or their families or their kids, you know, for so long. And knowing that that we can assist them, you know, I can even just help them get over there, you know, is just so rewarding just knowing that, it's such a helpful therapy, you know, it's scary and it's full on, but it can be really helpful. And to hear the, to hear the wives or the partners, you know, be able to say like, he's completely changed. He's calm. I can sit calmly with him now. It's just, it brings tears to my eyes and it brings me just so much joy. So, I mean, I, I, I love being able to, to assist veterans and first responders and really any civilian to be able to get over and do the deep work in Peru and, I just, yeah, I, I'm so proud of everyone that, that, that chooses that option as well. You know, like you're choosing to, to heal the collective as well. And it's a beautiful thing. And yeah. I'm just so humbled by it all. And yeah, it's, it's so amazing. It's really amazing. And like I said, uh, mindset and physical setting are probably the two most important uh, aspects of everything. And that's what you're helping these people find. So that's incredible. Yeah. Which can be hard. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Holly, I have just one last question to ask you, and it's the most important question of the day. Um, where can people uh, find you, find your art? Um, just sure. uh, follow you, like all, all that, um, all, anything you would like to share. Yeah, cool. Um, I mean, I've got an art page on Facebook and on Instagram. Instagram's where I do most of my art sort of stuff. The Instagram art community is very supportive and a very beautiful place to be compared to Facebook, in my opinion. Um mm -hmm. So I mean I've got a a my fa uh my Facebook uh, art profile is called Holly Jean uh, uh, Fluid Art or you can check me out on Instagram at Psychedelic Intimacy um, or Holly Jean Fluid Art as well you can try both of those um, 
yeah feel free to check out and please connect if anyone wants to talk plant medicine or ayahuasca or psychedelic therapy or art therapy or any of this i'm so open to connecting with people i love talking about this stuff i love hearing people's healing stories i love hearing from people even if they don't have a healing story and they just want to chat about art therapy or, or psychedelics i'm so open to it so Please, if anyone listening wants to talk any further about this stuff, like get get in contact. I'd love to. I'd love to chat. Also, yeah, guys, um, if you follow me, I will have Holly linked and everything. So it'll be super easy just to go through my thing. Click on her and there she'll be. <laughs> Holly, thank you awesome. so much for being on the podcast today. I, I was This has been fantastic. It's been really fun. I really appreciate it, Doug. I'm very humbled by everything. And, you know, I looked at all your previous guests and I was like, what am I doing on this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> why am I being invited to talk here? But I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 a powerful story to share. And, and I mean, connections the most important thing. So I'd love to I'd love to connect with more people and especially your viewers if they're interested. And, and with you again, I'd love to hear how your ice baths go. And if you ever want to go to Peru, let me know. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I you will you will hear about how the ice baths go. <laughs> I will let awesome. you know as, the, as soon as I do it, you're going to get a message from me. That'd be great. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. I look forward to it. Okay, cool. Thanks so much.